As we tentatively retire our overcoats and step out into the April sunshine, this episode of Confect Corner seizes the spirit of spring. It's time to fill your bright, brisk days with museum trips, to wave your paddle in the bustle of the auction house and to take the plunge in a Hungarian spa. This is a show of big ideas and small musings on beauty. We'll explore the journey of the tulip from its origins on the wild steppes of Asia via the Ottoman court to your window box. It's time to venture outside and stroll the city like a flaneuse. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. I think it's all about having an open, curious eye and follow your instinct. Like that, I've discovered things I never had expected. I decided to head to another city the Romans flocked to for its healing waters, near the Danube River. I'm talking about the so-called spa capital of the world, Budapest. I really admire photography for what it is. And I think it's a strong and important field of collecting. And it's very inviting for younger people who don't have necessarily such a big budget for art. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London, and I'm joined by Julian DeBias here with me in the studio and Marcella Palak in our Zurich office. Hello to you both. Hi, Sophie. Hello, Marcella. Nice Hello, to see you around the table again. Marcella, it was lovely to see you last week in person. But how are things to be back in Zurich? I hear spring is sprung over there. Yes, spring is definitely arrived in Zurich. It's very mild and the lake is very inviting. And in this waiting for you to jump <laughs> in like, waiting for your cold, cold water swimmer, Sophie. So next time. I'm going to be, yeah, I've got to get out there and in there as well. Yes, in there. <laughs> All I need is some sunshine and maybe a sheltered little moment at the body and I'll be there and I bet the, the water's fairly glacial at the moment, which well, is a good thing. I'm going to delay my visit because you know me, I'm much more of a rosé wine drinker in the body than a swimmer. <laughs> spectator. Exactly, I spectator do. sport. <laughs> I do both, Julian. <laughs> uh, Marcella, you've been in Paris before production week, you were in Paris catching up with some exhibitions too. Because fashion is not only about shopping, it's uh, it's also, fashion has also an amazing history. And at the time being, there are many amazing fashion exhibitions in the capital of fashion in my eyes. Exhibitions that everybody who loves fashion should absolutely visit. There is this charming homage to Albert Elba at the beautiful Musée Galliera. And then there are six fantastic exhibitions to honor the 60 years since Yves Saint Laurent presented his first collection under his name. And this is really amazing. You really dive into his design, into his world, into this clothes. You would prefer to go to Saint Laurent and buy a suit in the moment when you come out of the Musée Yves Saint Laurent. Then the amazing La Galerie, the museum of the new huge flagship store of Dior at the Avenue Montaigne that is incredibly impressive and creative. And that was really a wow moment. And did you see the Albert Elbaz piece at the Galleria? 
Yes, of course. I was everywhere. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I hear it's amazing. Yeah, it's really very, very charming because you see his old sketches, you know, that you recognize his personality. And then you see that the homages that many designers we all know have designed a dress as an homage to Albert Elba. And this is like all the thoughts and the emotions those designer had for Albert who was a very fascinating and very nice personality. And this is touches you, really your heart. It feels like brands too are all sort of making sure that they have their legacy in place now. One moment it was the, you know, Yves Saint Laurent was leading the, the charge with that beautiful museum, which opened a few years ago. But it feels like everyone else has played catch up and there is so much in terms of brand-led kind of archives and curation going on that actually... It's a different kind of paradigm. It's, it's beyond the museum, which is really nice. Well, it's a huge sense of pride, isn't it, for, for the French? And such and an amazing you know, wealth. You know, all they need to do is kind of step into that archive and start really kind of presenting it to the public in a different way. And then it kind of moves into the realm of art mm. in some ways. Gillian, tell so, me about what you've been up to. <laughs> I had a sneak peek at a building that I have been dying to see reopened because it's an iconic music venue in London. It used to be called Camden Palace. It's now called Coco. It has a 120-year-old history with Charlie Chaplin having performed there, the Rolling Stones, the Sex Pistols, David Bowie, Madonna, you name it. Anyone in music has performed at the Camden Palace. It was beset with problems, closed down, fire, flood. And now after five years renovation, £70 million invested in the design and architecture. And it's been reimagined, and the interior designers gave me a sneak preview. And what I loved about it is it's totally an ode to the music industry, past, present, and future. It's sort of a love affair with music, and the design cues all take their inspiration from the history of rock and roll. So Pyrogenes is the design studio, and they've done things like the upholstery and the fabrics were inspired by the scarves worn by Janis Joplin. The tiles take their cues from Vivian Westwood Tartan. The bars are kind of a nod to Camden's punk history, but subtly. But you just feel it there. And it's all about hidden spaces and discovery. And you go down one corridor, which used to be where the BBC would put their props or their equipment when they used it as a recording studio. And these little cubicles for their vinyl listening booths. And they're beautifully designed, very tactile, very warm. And they have little bells that you can press. And there's a little cocktail bar. And they'll make the cocktails revolving around the pile of vinyl and your musical taste. And then they have secret passages because it will be, for the public, there'll be the performance space, but also a members, a private members club. And with your membership, you get access to little stairwells that go down and you can go on the gallery of this beautifully domed concert hall and dip in and watch performances as you wish. So that really sense of being part of the music industry. I'm just so excited because I haven't been to a live music performance for, for ages and I can't wait to kind of... An amazing wow. budget and because it's 70 million. I mean, we've heard so many, frankly, quite dispiriting stories about live music venues closing and shuttering over the pandemic. So this is a really amazing good news story. Well, it's a long-term investment as well. And part of this, they took over an old piano factory. They took over an old derelict pub. They've merged it together. And it's very much there's going to be a recording studio. So it's a music industry hub as well. So I think it won't just rely on the live performances, although that will be its heartbeat. 
for sure. Um, but but it has other sort of sustainable parts of the business that, that can kind of keep it going. And Sophie, what about you? What have you been thinking about this month? So I've been in Paris three times this month. I was reflecting on all the different places I stayed because I tried to check in with some new hotels while I was there. And I I was so taken by this one place. In fact, it's in this issue of Confect. It's called the Hotel Sentier. And it's in the Passage. So it kind of actually straddles the Passage. On one side is the hotel and there's a little kind of beautiful bistro. So you have to kind of cross this 19th century Passage, which is... I think it was it it is sort of beating heart of the kind of drapery and kind of wholesale little etiquette labels and things are being sold all the way down this passage. I mean it's such an interesting area. I just had such a lovely time staying there. And then I stayed in another new hotel which is completely the other side of town near the Rondpoint and it was called the Hotel Nuage and it was so sweet. I completely recommend it. You went in, you felt You know, not a trendy neighborhood, just like near the Elysee Palace, the 8th arrondissement. But then you went in, the people, you felt like you were going home. There were these gorgeous little white boucle sofas and a guitar in the corner for you to play if you felt like strumming a bit of Joan Baez. And then an amazing little bedroom upstairs. And I just felt, you know, in between I stayed in a few big hotels. And then I realized that that's not where I'm happy. These two little places um, made me feel like home. It's interesting because for a while Paris used to have the sort of luxurious hotels or these small characterful hotels, but they just got, were getting more tired and more tired and more tired. So you didn't really have the choice now. And I think suddenly there's this kind of new oxygen. And I hear more and more about these very unique hotels that really labor of loves, complete labor of loves in Paris. So now to our first interview, we begin in Berlin to shine the spotlight on the renowned auction house Griesbeck. Specialising in artwork from the 19th, 20th and 21st centuries, it played a pivotal role in promoting modern art across Germany since its founding in 1986. Today we meet the powerful woman at the helm of Griesbach, partner and director Deandra Donnerker. We wanted to find out more about what it takes to make it in the male-dominated art industry and hear what it's like to shape the direction of one of the world's top-selling auction houses. And I'm pleased to say Deandra joins us now. Hello, Deandra. Hi, hello. Lovely to speak to you. You too. Now you feature in the next issue of Confect on a beautiful stroll uh, next to Lake Vance, talking about art, inspiration, nature, but also the auction house that you're now at the helm of. I just wondered if you could introduce Griesbeck for people who aren't familiar with the auction world. Um, Griesebach is one of the most important auction houses in Germany and in Europe. We mostly offer artworks from the 19th century to the 21st century and photography as well. We, in the middle of Berlin, in the western part of the city, so close to the Kudam, which was very relevant as a street in the Roaring Twenties with lots of cinemas and varieties and restaurants and bars and the building in which we are is very special as well and it gave us our company name Griesebach because Hans Griesebach was at his time in the 20s and 30s a very well-known architect who was building houses around the turn of the century for the most important families and 
art directors of his time. So we are now in his family house here and we have our offices here. We have a beautiful garden. We present all the artworks for the auctions. But more than that, we do exhibitions during the year. We have some salons or <laughs> how you would like to call it. So we invite people over for a drink. We have some lectures, some panels going on. And we do have a little podcast on our own. And um, it's a big pleasure to uh, work here and to be part of the team. We are almost 60 persons working here. And we are all devoted to arts and culture. And yeah, it's lots of fun. There are a lot of different auction houses in the different capital cities around the world. What would you say is really the common denominator to how you approach auctions and the art that comes through your doors? I think most special about us and what is a difference to all our competitors with whom we are, of course, very well connected is always that we try really to focus this one artwork and its history and the person offering it and the person to whom we might sell it. So it's a very like made to measure offer we have here. We don't sell many, many artworks. It's maybe only 1000 during a year, which is not so much actually. And we, we are a little bit like a luxury brand with a very small range of products, the artworks we offer, and a big quality of experts working here. And we try to give everyone the chance to experience something like a feeling, something like yeah, an impression of being part of the art world. So this is why we have such a strong program and events going on. And normally, I mean, Christie's was having this haunch of Vention gallery. It's very rare that a gallery and an auction house is connected. So first and formally, we are an auction house offering art in online and live sales, but we do try to get into a dialogue situation with our visitors and clients. And this is through events and gallery exhibitions as well. And this is quite special for German art and auction houses. And I, I was very struck by something you said in, in the interview in Confect was that the kind of choreography of being an auctioneer and I know you don't necessarily sort of hold the hammer yourself <laughs> but what draws you to that sense of energy and how do you think that affects the way people buy and perceive art what's the kind of I mean it sounds intoxicating to work in that room where you know, things are changing hands and this idea of who's going to win this this beautiful artwork Yes, it is toxic in a way because you will, if you once did it and if you once took part in an auction, you maybe won't stop because it's really like a fever or it's like um, haunting something you wish to call your own. And when you imagine yourself being guest within this choreography of auction days we have. So you would arrive here, have a coffee, or maybe later at night you have a glass of champagne. 
you sit down. There is this amazing auctioneer who is calling the lots. And it's really like you in this very moment who has to make the decision, am I going to put up my arm and decide to buy something or don't I? So it is very fast. It is very emotional. It is very personal. And of course, we have people calling and doing the telephone bits. We have online bits. So it's a lot of actions going on in parallel timeframes. And it feels a little bit like a theater situation with the setting of the room. We have a certain lightning. We all try to look our very best on that day and to be elegant or to be to create an atmosphere that is inviting and special and in a way glamorous. Maybe that's a little bit too much, but yeah, we intend to be like this during this moment where someone buys an artwork live in this room. Deandra, I wondered, I mean, it's interesting because the world of the auction house is considered to be in some ways quite old-fashioned and in other ways quite male-dominated. And in two ways, you've kind of come in and sort of, I don't know, shocked, but slightly eyebrows were raised when you took your pose because you're, you know, in your early 30s, you're a woman, you have a very refreshing and modern agenda for the auction house. Tell us about that moment of transition and, and what your vision is to kind of make the auction house more accessible in many ways. Yes, thank you for this question, because this is pretty much what I'm aiming for in my work here at Griesebach. So yes, it's definitely right when I popped up in 2019 as the director here of that house, it was um, like an earthquake for some people because yes, the market is quite conservative and classical. And I think my biggest motivation is to invite people to come in and they don't have to buy anything or they don't have to know anything about art. I think art is such major important part of understanding where we come from and understanding where maybe we go to, but we don't need to be frightened to enter a gallery space or to maybe open, tell someone, I have no clue about blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter. Just come and look, use your eyeballs and enjoy what you see, the colors, the story behind it, the biography of certain persons. And my biggest motivation is to open up our house because as As I said earlier, we are sitting in this very beautiful villa, it, it is called. So it's a very chic house. And there are many who would not even think of coming in because they might be afraid. So my mission is to open up the house, to invite people to come in. And I would see myself always as kind of a host more than a director or whatever. I'm, I want to be a storyteller and I want to be a host. So this is why we have this podcast. This is why we do the events. This is why we have online auctions, getting out to a broader group of people who maybe have never been here in our street, in our building, but who get to know us through the internet. 
I noticed that you added photography to your auctions. And I just wondered if you can tell us a little bit, what, what is the market like at the moment for photography? And are you sensing that people are looking for, for certain things? What are they responding to at this moment in time when it comes to photography? I think that photography, unfortunately, market-wise, is such a difficult area because everyone knows a lot about photography, maybe takes photographs him or herself, The museums are crowded whenever photographs are on view. For the market, it is a difficult area because you have all those different vocabulary to say, is it a vintage print? Is it a later print? Is it stamped? Is it signed? Is it an edition? So people tend to be quite hesitant when it is about photography, but I think it is the best way to start your contact into the arts world because you have those very beautiful prints you can buy them quite cheaply so sometimes a photo starts at 200 euros or 1000 euros which is maybe affordable for some of the people we addressing it is easy to understand how the procedure is how a photo is made It's not such a long history in comparison to old master drawings, which is maybe many, many hundred years long. So this is an invention from the 1860s. So maybe 100 years of history you could learn easily. And it's a nice way to start your collection. Same with prints and editions in general. And photography is always, like it's said in the early essays and writings, if you look for Walter Benjamin or other writers of his time, it has always this touch of magic because you can look at one's face and you know the person existed in that very moment and that was the way he or she was dressed and his face, the way the hand was I don't know, holding whatever. So you really have this momentum, this aura of the moment, which is not easy to be achieved in any other field of the arts. And I really admire photography for what it is. And I think it's a strong and important field of collecting. And it's very inviting for younger people who don't have necessarily such a big budget for art. Deandre Donica there, the director of Griesbeck Auction House in Berlin. So Sophie, have uh, you ever bought anything at auction? I have. I love auctions. And I, <laughs> when I lived in Paris, I used to go to an amazing auction house called Druro. And it's right in the centre in Richelieu, but they had slightly sort of outcast items. And I used to go up and join these antiques dealers and people you know loading up huge crates to send back to Canada or Australia with these French antiques amazing bizarre things went through I bid once on a selection of tiny little modernist chairs for my children (laughs) got them and um, (laughs) I bought quite a lot of amazing sort of completely underrated porcelain nobody seemed to want it I mean it was there's such an abundance in Paris and I think that It's just a wonderful way of, like, the energy and the kind of competitive, wonderful sparring in the auction house. 
was well, very addictive. And, and a sense of kind of success, achievement. So when you have them in your home, there's a, a certain sort of pride. I did it. I won. I did I it. I won. Yeah, and you have, to, you have to have your paddle. You have to really get there. And in fact, the sad thing is about the pandemic, it has sort of taken that physical presence mm. away. There's another auction house I love in England called Willingham, and it's right in the fens. It's absolutely beautiful, and they have the most amazing Irish antiques there and watches. You can go and have this wonderful day out and you come home with the most bizarre things. I bought this most amazing chest there, which is like kind of military walnut chest from some amazing adventure of somebody's life. And I think like you just never know what you're going to come home with, what moment. Like you just get carried away with the paddle and start waving. I bet every time you have a dinner party, someone always says, and Sophie, what is that piece? (laughs) Marcella, what about you? Have you bought much at any auctions over there in Zurich? Actually, I don't go to auctions, but I tend to collecting, I must confess. I found once hand-painted Japanese screen from the late 19th century with the theme of spring, and I've fallen in love immediately. It was this one piece, but actually there were also themes with fall, winter and summer, and I regret until now (laughs) that I didn't consider to buy them because I would love to find them again and to complete this series. So I'm waiting. The ones that got away. And what about artworks? Have you bought many artworks? I can imagine your house is filled with beautiful paintings from your Czech ancestors. (laughs) No, no Czech ancestors. Young Zurich crowd. Or just talented friends. (laughs) Yes, boys I loved and had to buy an artwork. No, there's a lot of art going on in Zurich. And um, Zurich and, of course, Switzerland is an art country. And, of course, you see little things when they are still affordable and buy something. But actually, yeah, the problem is always where to show those pieces. So actually they are stored away at the moment because you would need a huge house to show all the art pieces. And Gillian, are you an auction maven at all? Oh, I love the idea, but any of my disposable income, I sort of channel to flights and gorgeous hotels (laughs) in Paris and eating out. So I don't buy at auction, but my secret pleasure is I love the previews before because you see museum quality art, museum quality objet d'art, jewelry in a quite sort of private setting and for just this tiny window of opportunity, sort of post one owner and pre another owner. And I just find it very heady to think of the stories behind, the owners behind, the lives they had. And my imagination runs wild with me. And then where they go next. And I just find that magic. For many people, the tulip is a cheerful indication of spring. But it's also a flower with a big history. Today, it is firmly associated with the Netherlands, but its way to the Western world was long and winding as it developed from a humble wildflower of the Asian steppes to the big business it is today. One of its stops on the way was Austria. Confect contributor in Vienna, Alexei Korilov, went along to the city's botanical gardens to investigate. All the green you can see here, that's wild tulip. And last year, nearly every plant was flowering yellow. The tulip's journey to Europe and the best-selling status it has today 
is clouded by time and distance. But it is now almost universally accepted that this journey began in the Ottoman Empire and ended in the Netherlands, where it famously caused the first great financial bubble in history, the tulip mania of the 17th century. But there was one important stop along the way, Vienna. My name is Michael Keane. I'm professor of botany at the University of Vienna, and I'm the director of the Botanical Garden of the University of Vienna, which we are visiting now. The foundation of the garden uh, was initiated by uh, the court physician of Maria Theresia, Gerard van Zwieten, who came from the Netherlands, from Leiden. Why do I tell this story? Because the connections to the Netherlands are not the first connections that the uh, city of Vienna and the court had. Roughly 200 years earlier, around 1570, mm -hmm. uh, another person coming from the Netherlands called Carolus Clusius acted as a court horticulturist for Maximilian II, the emperor of uh, Austria at that time. That man, Carolus Clusius, is crucial to the tulip story. But as Professor Keen explains, there was another key character, an Austrian diplomat in 16th century Constantinople. One name which is important here is Augier Ghislain de Bousbeck, head of the diplomatic uh, mission in Constantinople, but also very interested in plants and in old books. So he was in contact with botanists in Vienna and he sent over plants that he found and that he uh, thought to be interesting to Vienna. So he for sure was responsible for sending the first lilac, for sending horse chestnut, for sending a number of plants we now, these days, consider to be quite uh, normal within our gardens. And he also sended bulbs of tulips. And in fact, uh, Carolus Clusius received the material and he grew the material in Vienna. So who was this Carolus Clusius? Clusius was uh, hired by Maximilian II as the court hortelanus for the new castle of Neugebäude Maximilian was planning. Um, this was quite unusual in so far that Clusius was a Protestant and the Habsburg Empire and the emperors were Catholic. But then in 1576 Maximilian II died and his son and successor, Rudolf II, did something that would have far-reaching consequences for the future of the tulip. He um, stopped all contracts with Protestants. So Clusius had to leave, then he moved to Frankfurt, and from Frankfurt he got the invitation to come to Leiden. And now we have the connection because Clusius was born in France, in Arras, he then went, uh, well, through nearly all of Europe, had the position in Vienna, had the position in Frankfurt, and he ended in Leiden, and he was commissioned to found the Botanic Garden of Leiden. And he brought the tulips with him, and he also got tulips from his contacts in the Netherlands. So the first achievements of Clusius was that he just brought tulips together. The second achievement was that he described the tulips scientifically. 
Not only that he described one, he described different types. So he saw there is a different species and he could already distinguish a number of forms and that was important for the future of tulips because that laid the ground also for the crossing experiments. So here's a million or rather billion dollar question. Would history have been different if Clusius and his tulips had remained in Vienna? A last word from Professor Keane. Difficult question. I would think no, because the main production sites for agricultural products in Austria would probably be the main sites for cultivating tulips. And if you have the question whether to, to produce food or to produce tulips, the decision would be to produce food. Mm. So the area covered by tulips potentially in Austria would not have been large enough to serve such a market as the Netherlands do today. That was Alexei Korolev in Vienna. Coming up, this month's Culture Corner takes us to Madrid, and we muse on the joys of wandering around the city. You're listening to Confect Corner. This is Confect Corner, and I'm Sophie Grove. To Budapest next. Known as the spa capital of the world, it is home to some of Europe's oldest thermal baths. From Ottoman-style Turkish baths to Roman and even Neo-Baroque, for centuries people have used these places to unwind and bask in the steamy waters. Convex Daphne Carnesis takes us for a dip in these springs and finds out why spas in the Hungarian capital are used for much more than relaxation. Back when I was studying in the city of Bath, like many, I was given a tour of the natural Roman-built baths after which the city was named. The Romans built a temple next to these hot springs, dedicated to the goddess Sulis Minerva. They enjoyed the springs as a healing public bathing house in the first decades of Roman Britain. They're the only natural thermal waters in the UK, and it's a major tourist attraction, but today, the public can't actually swim in these ancient baths. Fast forward to a few months ago, and I decided it was time for my first proper spa experience. By the way, the word spa comes from the Latin phrase sanitas per aquas, or health from water. I decided to head to another city the Romans flocked to for its healing waters, near the Danube River. I'm talking about the so-called spa capital of the world, Budapest. The Hungarian capital has over 120 natural hot springs, the largest concentration anywhere, and there's a reason for that. I won't bore you with the geological intricacies, but bear with me. Hungary sits on the Carpathian Basin, where the Earth's crust is thinner. That means the water is infused with precious minerals because they're able to rise closer to the Earth's surface. Think elements like copper, sulphate, calcium, magnesium and zinc. 
Cosmetic brands like Omorovica even include Hungarian thermal water within their products as a way to harness the benefits in skincare. Okay, now that's out of the way. For my first dip, I head to the largest medicinal bath in Europe, Szczecini, an impressive neo-baroque palace spa in northern Budapest. With 18 pools and a limited amount of time, I have to take my pick. I decide to head straight to the outdoor pool, where the water is a steamy 38 degrees. Outside the water, the air's 5 degrees on a chilly winter's morning. I inhale the steam, and as I exhale, feel my muscles instantly relax. But for me, it was the social scene that had me hooked. Spas in Budapest aren't a luxury, or rather, they're a luxury that can be enjoyed by all. And locals usually have a favourite neighbourhood spa they'll visit once or twice a week to relax, keep their health in check, but also socialise. I look around and see faces of old, young, friends, couples, even a group of old men playing chess, half submerged in the water, the sun hitting their beaming faces. In some of the treatment rooms, you can even get a relaxing Hungarian mud massage using more mud from Lake Hevis, southwest of Budapest, also the world's largest swimmable thermal lake. And it's not just about relaxation. So revered are the water's therapeutic properties that doctors prescribe the baths as a form of medication to patients with certain ailments, from psoriasis, rosacea or eczema to joint pain and arthritis. That means less people filling up hospitals and dermatologists' offices or patients going on unnecessary drugs. So entwined are the spas with medicine that when I visited one of the smaller, oldest thermal baths, the Lukatz baths on the Buda, the western side of the city, I learned that an adjacent daytime hospital had been added to the baths, an official water hospital to treat locomotive diseases and prescribed as physiotherapy. The experience at Budapest spas didn't disappoint. Whether you're in the mood for a mud massage, a healing steamy bath, or simply want to admire the Roman and Ottoman-influenced architecture, you'll find that these spas go beyond luxury and beyond a tourist attraction. They're rooted in the local way of life and will continue to do so for decades to come. For Confect Corner in Budapest, I'm Daphne Carnesis. It's time now for this episode's instalment of Culture Corner, and I'm joined again by Confect's deputy editor, rather new deputy editor, Chiara <laughs> Romella. Welcome to the studio. Always an absolute pleasure. Now, we haven't been anywhere together. There are no little outings this time, but funnily enough, you were in Madrid for an art fair and met an amazing artist, Sol Calero, and interviewed her. I've also experienced one of her installations in Folkestone a few years ago, an amazing sort of riot of colour, electric kind of feeling around her work. And what was she like? Well, I think it's really interesting, Sophie, that both of us were so attracted by her work. You know, I was at a very busy art fair, but the stand of uh, Shirt Lude, which is her gallery, 
really drew me in. It's this amazing work, very colourful. It was lots of paintings with, I guess, representations of luscious fruit, pomegranates, lemons, foliage. It was very, very enticing. So I think it's it's great that both of us were drawn to the same aesthetic. And it was my pleasure to discover that the work becomes, as it always does, much more interesting when you actually talk to the artist. She happened to be there, which is a rarity in case of art fairs. Normally artists are kind of hiding away. So I grabbed a moment with her and she just illuminates the work. It reveals a whole new layer and actually it reveals that this joyfulness that drew us in is almost like just the first layer and then if you go deeper there are so many notions of identity, of colonialism, of what it means to belong somewhere that kind of emerge. So we grabbed a stool and we sat down and we had a little chat and if you would like we can listen to it now. The paintings are related to the installations that I do, to the projects that has certain more specific conceptual-based projects. So in a way, they are really connected to certain ideas, for example, that comes from research that I've done in the last 10 years regarding the perception of Latin America from the outside or the Caribbean in particular, but also like what is what we understand for Latin American art. And that has taken me to a place where I do the installations that I do to sort of create spaces for conversation related with certain questions that I'm interested about. And the paintings in the installations, because as a formal aspect of the work, I really like painting, I really enjoy painting. So the paintings are connected conceptually with these installations, but they also are uh, bringing certain sort of decorative elements to the installation. So it puts this question of like, is the painting a decorative elements of the installation or we can see painting as painting itself. I think it's also one cannot forget that the way that we perceive or anyone perceives Europe from Latin America is still a quite problematic perception too. Like artists, even myself, the way this the reason why I start sort of like going back to the roots of color and thematically aspects of that had this bring up these questions is because Growing up and studying art as a, a Latin American, do you also imagine that to enter these circuits, you should be doing certain things in a certain way? What does that mean then, being based in Berlin, in terms of you bringing your Latin American identity to the fore versus you know you not being able to do that in Spain? How does the location where you are determine how this conversation moves forward? Well, I think like it's an interesting question because even though that my work 10 years ago, that was the approach, I'm in a different position now because it's also complicated because I am seen as a Latin American because I was born in Venezuela, but I haven't lived there in a long time. So it's also like a tricky position. No? So I like to focus right now into the idea that I have already developed a language as an artist that I feel comfortable working with, but also like the idea that I'm trying to sort of project in new projects that is not on this kind of work that is the painting, the most more formal projects. It's like, it's not only like, for me, it's like it has expanded the concept. It's not just me, the Latin American that live in Europe and, you know, deal with like racism and things like that. It's more to think about immigration as a concept, no? And how my position with this conversation is something that 
anyone else can be related to. No? When you go to a new place, you have to adapt to a new society. And this idea of integration, with this idea of integration, is also assume that you have to forget where you're coming from. But not to be completely negative about this, this idea, I think like what I'm interested in is also like speaking from this position of the immigration, no? where it's like you can, in an identity sense, you don't have references anymore where you're coming from. So you create a narrative that it comes from this almost utopian place, from this island place as an identity. And I'm interested in to understand or research this perception. You know? So I'm kind of going towards that direction more. I'm moving away from the more like Latin American tag. And that was Sol Calero. She's a Berlin-based Venezuelan artist. It's very interesting how her ambivalence to this aesthetic of the Latin American kind of exactly what you just described, this sort of lush, wonderful, colourful, joyous aesthetic. She feels is not necessarily where she wants to be, but at the same time, it's it defines her. Oh, definitely. And I think it's not necessarily that she doesn't want to be it, but she knows that she's leaning into it because it comes to, the, to her advantage. It's almost like an ironic use of it, but at the same time, there's no kind of denying that it has an appeal. I'm sure for her as well, because otherwise she wouldn't be using these riotous colours throughout her work all the time. And, you know, I think that you see it also. We have a, a very international office here at Midori House, and you see how people, on the one hand, recognise that seen from the outside, their own home nations have stereotypical connotations applied to them. And there is a level of resistance to kind of accepting that that's the view from outside. But at the same time, I think you yourself end up fantasizing about your own nation so much more when you're away. I mean, so if you've lived in lots of different places, how did you end up feeling towards Britain or towards France or towards Turkey when you were in all these different places and having to pit your identity against these places every time? I think you do start to slightly drill down your identity into more of a cliché, possibly. But it is interesting, when I used to come back from the Middle East to London, it felt so grey, like a kind of, almost like a graveyard. <laughs> and there was mist. And I, I felt like, wow, this is my country. But I think that colour is so embodiment sometimes of identity. And her work is so wonderful in the sense that you'd feel transported. And I was in Folkestone, I just happened to be there for Biennale. And we ended up in one of her pavilions, just lounging around in the sun it was sunny actually that day on the beach and I felt really the sense of community but the sense of kind of this wonderful I mean I suppose it is tropical but then this idea of exoticizing this tropical palette obviously has a lot of colonial legacy and and problems but there's no denying that it isn't just wonderful for people to be surrounded by colour. Yeah exactly and I think that it's exactly that duality that gives profoundity to the work and another thing that she told me and I mean we met in Madrid on occasion of a fair that is almost a meeting point between Europe and Latin America because a lot of European collectors who are interested in Latin American art go to Madrid for ARCO to get access to the Latin American work. 
But at the same time, also, the Spanish market is still very interested in Latin America. And that's got a legacy of colonialism to it as well, no doubt. So it's interesting how we met there. And she said she actually studied in Madrid. She studied in Spain. But it wasn't until she moved to Berlin that she actually managed to find her own kind of separate identity. She couldn't quite make a mark as an artist in Spain and it took her moving to Berlin to do that. So I think it's interesting, again, like where you pit your identity against. Perhaps in Spain, her Venezuelan identity didn't resonate in the same way that it does in Berlin, or she has transformed the way that she represents her identity differently. It's just interesting, this idea of contrast, where you come from, where you end up, how the two end up shaping everything that you do. I mean, and also how amazing Berlin happens to be. How many stories are we going to hear about people going there and feeling liberated I think we need to go right now (laughs) (laughs) and also find Sol Calero um, and put her in conflict but um, really lovely to speak to you thank you so much Chiara and now for a final thought writer Anna Kinsella reflects on the pleasure of flannery or strolling around the city without a purpose and how it goes hand in hand with a deep sense of belonging In her book, The Odd Woman and the City, Vivian Gornick wrote about walking among the crowds of her native New York. In the midst of so many other bodies, she observed, New York belongs to me as much as it does to them, but no more so. We are all here on Fifth Avenue by virtue of the same right. For years, Gornick took daily walks that traversed miles of Manhattan's grid and loved that these walks cleared her mind, lifted her mood, and allowed her to absorb the private lives of her fellow New Yorkers. Likewise, I have spent years observing London through the walks that I take as part of my daily routine, walking to avoid the tube at rush hour or to give myself the space to think through my problems. I'm hardly the first to do so. As long as there have been streets to walk on, there have been people crossing the city as an act of pleasure as much as of necessity. Traditionally, flannery, or the literary art of strolling the city, has been the pursuit of men. Originating in the writings of Walter Benjamin and Charles Baudelaire, the idealized flaneur was a rich man with the time and freedom to go where he wanted, whenever he wanted, observing contemporary life. In doing so, he would make this kind of aimless walking an art form. Much later, in the 1950s, Guy Debord and the Situationists turned the concept on its head in the form of psychogeography, with walking the city streets reimagined as abstract drifts through arbitrary routes. Of course, women walk in the city and observe it too, although some of us arrive on the street with our different set of concerns. Even today, women have to calculate the risk of random violence or harassment on their walks. And let's face it, If women had idled in the arcades of Paris as Benjamin and Baudelaire did, they would probably have produced a different genre of text. More recently, in her 1992 book, The Sphinx and the City, theorist Elizabeth Wilson noted that the onset of modernity in cities, so-called civilization with its commerce and culture, made the metropolis more inviting to women. Women, she argues, now have a right to the carnival, intensity, and even the risks of the city, just as much as men do. The kind of city walking that I most enjoy is not aimless or artful so much as it is incidental. 
It is more like what Virginia Woolf called street haunting in a 1930 essay. The half-conscience gliding and observing I do when I move on autopilot. The eye is not a miner, not a diver, not a seeker after buried treasure, Woolf wrote of her own street rambling through London after a day's work. It floats us smoothly down a stream, resting, pausing. The brain sleeps, perhaps, as it looks. My walking is also about sheer sensation, the giddy rush that comes with crossing the busy city streets at lunchtime, and the delight at seeing a man in a fine suit attempt to hail a cab, or two elderly ladies doubled over in laughter at a shared joke. It was spotting someone dressed obscenely elegantly, maybe wearing a long burgundy velvet gown in the streets near the Royal Opera House, or seeing someone who conformed to type so clearly that it felt like a wonderful punchline, such as a mohawked punk outside Camden Town Station, or the pearly kings and queens in their suits heavily embellished with mother-of-pearl buttons that spoke of a bygone version of the city. There is an exuberance to these first spring days in the city, a sense of possibility that is hard to find in the depths of winter. Rebecca Solnit notes that this spring potential is best accessed through a city walk. In her book Wanderlust, she writes, One does not have to go into the bakery or the fortune tellers, only to know that one might. It's in the spring that I first have the opportunity to dawdle on the street again, to take the longer route on the way to meet a friend after work. As the temperature starts to rise, I notice the passing of the seasons in the plumage of my fellow pedestrians. First the shedding of the winter coat, then the dog walkers who leave their wellies at home as the ground beneath them begins to dry out. Next is the appearance of unmanicured toes and sandals, and then at last the bankers, forced by the heat to carry their jackets over a forearm. In this way, I'm reminded of what first drew me to life in the city. The fact that it is possible to make a life for yourself here on your own terms. It wasn't about flannery or psychogeography so much as taking my place on the street. It is Gornick's democratic space that anyone could claim ownership of. This was where I could be myself, among everyone else who was doing the same. It's where I could observe them and be observed by them too, in a way that made me feel some new autonomy. Here is where I become a citizen, not in my flat or in an office, but on the pavement and in the parks, amid all the others who have chosen to do the same. That was Anna Kinsella there. Marcella, would you call yourself a flaneuse? Yes, and how? I read Anna Kinsella calls it autopilot. I think it's all about having an open, curious eye and follow your instinct. Like that, I've discovered things I never had expected, like little hidden parks in New York, a nice street with amazing architecture in Casablanca, or a fabulous food store in Paris. So... Actually, I can't visit a new city without getting lost. Gillian, do you like a, a stroll? Oh, a stroll. No, give me the flaneur. I love the word flaneur. Okay. I'm a flaneur. <laughs> I'm not a stroller. I'm a flaneur, Sophie. I adore it. I adore it. And I think, you know, sometimes I, I even prefer visiting new cities or cities I love on my own because I don't think you can flan with other people. I think a flannery is definitely on your own where you don't really know where you're going and you just follow your instincts and turn corners and down winding lanes and you pop into endroits in cities in a different way and it's the absolute joy of the surprise of what you find and sometimes it's not so great but that's why when you do find something special it's all the more wonderful and Anna's essay is quite 
political in some ways. It's talking about how women own the pavement just as much as anyone else. And I think it's very interesting that this sense of, you know, who has a right to the space at night, for instance, mm. who has right to the space and the kind of precious commodity of the pavement and how it's this wonderful space for everyone. I think we underestimate how amazing it is to have this space for observation, for tranquil, kind of safe movement through our cities. Since I've been thinking about her essay more and more, I actually feel quite privileged to walk <laughs> along the pavement in Marlborough in the sun. There's nothing more wonderful, actually. But you've been lucky enough to live in Istanbul, and I think that would be a wonderful place. Yeah, except the pavement does sometimes trail <laughs> off to just a kind of, like, ditch. <laughs> if you've got a buggy with you, that's pretty hard. What I love is being on holiday in Italy, that passeggiata, that moment everyone goes out at the same time, and mm. there's a sense of spectacle. There's a sense of this is a moment of parade for mm. looking all around, but also being observed and I think that the theatricality of that is really a wonderful thing well that's all we have time for this time thanks to Julian Tobias and Marcella Pallack keeping me company once again issue 5 of Confect is out now and issue 6 isn't far away it hits the newsstands on the 10th of April get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. This episode was edited by David Stevens, Steph Chungu and Jack Dewars. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.